Hello, hello, church. Uh, my name is Young, and we'll now be reading today's passage from Philippians chapter two, verses five through eleven. Please follow along in your own Bible or the screen. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. This is the reading of God's word. Well, uh, good morning to you, True North. My name is Eugene. I'm a member of the pastoral staff here. I have the privilege of giving today's word. Uh, just so you know, we're still kind of in guest speaker month, but next week, uh, the guest speaker that we have, Jeremy Treat, could only come next week, so I decided to do this to ensure he could come. I'm excited for him to come. He's lead pastor of Reality LA. Uh, he's also a world-renowned biblical scholar, so I'm excited to have him next Sunday. But this Sunday, uh, what I wanted to do is to take a look at a text that I think, if you grew up in the church, you might have heard in one form or another. Um, this idea of Jesus emptying himself for the sake of ourselves in the church. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian uh, during the Nazi regime. And he wrote this, which has always stuck with me. The person who loves their dream of community will destroy community, but the person who loves those around them will create community. What Dietrich is saying is I think something that often we come to realize when you're in a community long enough, that the idea of loving people, the idea of caring for people, the idea of being a loving church sounds really good. But when it comes to the nitty-gritty, when the rubber hits the road, what you realize is it's harder than the dream. And for many of us, I don't know how many, who you are or what your history is with the church, many of us, you've been hurt by the church, and I'm not trying to at all negate that trauma or hurt you that's been caused to you, but you've been hurt, and because of that, you, you kind of just take a step back. And what I hope to show us today is this, that there is a secret that Paul gives us in this text and how we can become a community that doesn't just dream about being a loving community, but actually does it. And it's actually a problem because uh, I just read in the Atlantic, 40 million Americans have stopped attending church in the past 25 years. And it's actually the largest shift in church history uh, within the American church history at least. And the article goes on to kind of talk about, well, why is it? And what the article tries to propose is this. It's not that the church is not doing enough, but it's not asking enough of its people. And I want to be very careful here as the pastor. I'm not trying to just, you know, tell you guys to do more, to serve more, to give more. But I think it lines up with what Paul is telling us here. You see, what Paul here is doing is he's giving instruction on how to build the church, not by doing more, but by first seeing who Jesus is correctly. 
The NIV does a better job translating this verse that we just read in, in verse 5. What it says is, keeping your relationships in mind, have then the same mind of Christ. And then, as we just read, you see this beautiful poem of the gospel shown to you, that Jesus was man, I mean, Jesus was God, became man for our sake, came down this earth, was incarnated into flesh, and because of that, that gives us the power to become a community. Well, how does that work? I have three simple things for us today. First, that we can see how the incarnation changes how we view Jesus, how the incarnation should change how we view the church, and how the incarnation should change how we view yourself. So how the incarnation changes how we see Jesus, the church, and ourselves. But first is this, we have to see Jesus through an incarnational lens. Before we try and build the church, we have to correctly take Jesus for who he says he is. And the question I have for you before we get into any of the things that we have to do is this, how do you see Jesus? Especially if you've grown up in the church, how do you see him? Some of us might see him as teacher, some of us might see him as friend, others of us might see him as a genie, but I would, I would, I would say this, all of us deep down inside there's an element of this. What we view, what we believe Jesus to be is we believe in what I call the state farm Jesus. Like a good neighbor, Jesus is there. And what I mean by that is this, deep down inside, Jesus is an insurance policy for you and he just, that's it. That for many of us, what Jesus is, more than an actual person and more than a relational invitation, Jesus is an insurance policy for our souls. That, hey, if I just believe in this guy, if I die and I just make sure I confess right before I die, I have a ticket to go into heaven. But the problem is when you view Jesus to be an insurance policy, it has no bearing on your day-to-day life. Because, I mean, think about your own insurance policies, whatever you have. You probably don't even know. Because the thing, you don't even care about your insurance policies unless there's crisis or a death, right? Unless you get into a car accident, unless you go to the hospital, unless your house burns down, you, on your everyday life, probably don't even know your policies. And in that same way, I, I think we view Jesus in that same way. We don't really care until something happens where we're in danger, and you never check the details of your policy. And if you try, it's one of the most annoying things to do, right? Everyone hates, well, I don't know if anyone works in insurance. If you do, I apologize. But everyone hates insurance salesmen, right? Because deep down inside, you get the, the notion they're trying to take advantage of you. They're trying to raise their premiums high enough where they get a profit. And that same way, that's how we view our faith. It's like, oh, I don't want to look at the details. I'm good. Just let me pay my premium. And this is the thing, for the insurance that you pay for, you get the coverage you pay for. And so much of our spiritual life is kind of wrapped around that thinking that if I just pay the right premiums spiritually, if I come out like three times a month, if I tithe, if I show up to community group, if I serve, then I have my ticket to heaven. I paid enough premium to get in. And the end of the day, an insurance policy is a cold, dead contract that does not change the quality of your life. It's only obsessed with the quantity of your life. And let me say this, Jesus does grant you eternal life after your death, but what Jesus promises you is so much more than that. And that when you take a deep look at what Paul is saying in Philippians 2 is that you cannot allow Jesus as presented to be merely an insurance policy for your life. Because what Paul describes beautifully in this poem from verses 6 to 11 
is Jesus incarnating himself, becoming flesh, becoming man, and that should radically change every aspect of our lives, especially our relationships. And what do I mean by this? What is the incarnation? Well, simply is that Jesus became flesh. God, Jesus became fully God and fully human, and we'll get into that. But that's important for us to see because I would say this. You might have heard that theologically or on a sermon, or if you grew up in church enough, it's like, oh, I get it. But do we really get it? Like, is that the first way we see Jesus? Because this is the thing. Being in flesh matters. Uh, my wife yesterday went to Taylor Swift concert, um, and I'll talk about that a little bit more later, okay? Uh, she went back-to-back concerts. It's crazy, which I'm happy for her. But anyways, um, she went to Taylor Swift concert. And what's crazy is, I, I'm not really, I, I don't understand Taylor Swift. I didn't know she grew this popular. I, she has produced $4 billion from her world tour. Like, like a gross, it's, it's more than more, more, most countries, right? There are articles on how Taylor Swift might save the recession, right? And it's like, it's fascinating to me. Because at some concerts, what people will do is that they'll wait outside and not even pay for a ticket, but stay there three hours just being able to hear her physically. There are some people in concerts that are wearing diapers because they don't want to miss any second of the show. And I'm just like, that's crazy, right? And on TikTok, they're interviewing these people like, why are you here? It's like, oh, because she's here in physical flesh, right? And I was like, oh, that's, that's weird. But it makes sense because there's a difference. There's a difference between, like, you could listen to all of her songs on Spotify, like, I could show you the concert list and be like, hey, just sit in the room. I'll give you perfect quality speakers. I'll give you a great screen. And it's just, it, 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 technically, it should be the same thing, but it's, but it's not. We pay thousands of dollars, not just to tell Swift. I pay thousands of dollars to go to sports events. We pay so much money to go to live things because being in flesh matters. Right? Like, listening to BTS on Spotify versus seeing them in person, two completely different experiences. And this is what the beauty of the gospel is. Jesus easily did not have to become flesh. He could have been like, hey, this is my Spotify version of myself. And we'd be like, hey, at least we have this. But he goes a step further. He comes in flesh. And we know it matters. We see it in our own life. And this is the thing. I don't think we realize, and even myself, we realize the importance of this truth because this has to change radically how we view Jesus. Jesus can no longer be an insurance policy if he becomes flesh. Why? Let's break it down. Verse 6, Paul says this, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does that mean? Uh, the, the, the Greek word for grasp, it almost means robbery. And I think what Paul is saying here is this, that even though Jesus had a quality with God, that he had all these divine attributes, he did not choose to use that standing for his own selfish ambition and gain. It's a reversal of the story of Adam and Eve. Because it's very similar if you look at the text, because what Paul is saying is though he was in the form, the image of God, who else was created in the image of God? Adam and Eve. Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What did Adam do? He wanted everything in his power to be equal with God. That's why he fell. You see, that truth in itself that we have a God who is not obsessed with his own selfish desires or ambitions or his own plans. He is not self-centered but self-serving. That has to change 
everything in how we see Jesus. He is not a, just a teacher. He is not just an insurance policy, which is all true. He gives you eternal life. He teaches good things. But we have a God who stepped down into this earth. And what else does Paul say? Verse 7. But Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being, fo- being born in the likeness of men. When he came to us, he could have came in so many different forms or ways. And yet he emptied himself of divine attributes. When Jesus comes to this earth, when, when he says like, man, I don't know the day or time when, when God will return. When he asks what is wrong with you when people are brought up, he really doesn't know. He's not playing tricks or mind games. Jesus has become fully human. He knows what it is to be us. You see, when we try and move to different places, we try and make sure that wherever we're moving to fits us. You know what I'm saying? Like if you go on Zillow, you know, especially if you're a parent, and this is, there's no shame in doing this, but if you go on Zillow and you see like a cheap house, you're like, there has to be a catch. There always is. Like the, the school system sucks, right? The crime is high. And what do you do? It's like, oh, I don't want to go there. And we, 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 what we do on Zillow is we filter out, hey, I want three bedrooms, two bathrooms, this price range with this education system. What we're doing is when we move, when we move to a new place, we want to make sure that environment caters to us. And there's no shame in doing that. I'm not saying to sell everything and go into the you know, to the streets. I'm not saying that, but you have to see Jesus does the exact opposite. When he comes and moves onto earth, he does not demand earth to change to him. He becomes a form of a man. And you have to understand that he is hungry, he is confused, he's agitated. Jesus is becoming human. He's becoming like us. Paul continues in verse 8, and being found in human form, Jesus humbled him humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You have to realize this too, that the story that we have of who Jesus is, he's God, he can do whatever he wants. You know, when you play video games and you get frustrated and you lose, you can always press the reset button. Jesus easily at the Garden of Gethsemane, before he dies on the cross, he could easily said, Lord, I'm going to press the reset button, I'm out. But he doesn't. He goes to the cross And he doesn't just fake die. He really ties. He feels the pain, the anxiety, the fear of death. He has that in human form. And it's not just for this. He didn't just die for our sake. But Paul, what Paul is trying to say is, look, you you know Jesus died for your sake. But look at the manner in how Jesus died. Jesus was crucified. Crucifixion, uh, it was one of the most shameful ways to die in the Roman times. It's comparable to to someone dying today to a firing squad. You would almost be shocked to see that. Uh, Some scholars even think the word crucifixion, you weren't allowed to say it in public settings. It was almost like kind of like, oh, you don't say that word. That's the shame that Jesus went through, even in his death. In Jewish culture, in Deuteronomy, what, what it tells the Jewish people is this, that if you were hung on a tree, you were considered to be cursed by God. Imagine these Jewish folk who had all this hope that this is our Messiah, that he's come to free us, maybe with military power, maybe to to destroy everything and to create a new order, and yet he dies on a cross. And even his followers were probably like, oh, this guy is pathetic. That's the amount of shame Jesus took to save us. He could have died in a noble way. He could have died in a heroic, brave heart way, and yet he did not. 
if a movie, modern day, was made about Jesus, it'd be one of the most anticlimactic movies of all time until you get to the resurrection. Now, why is this all important for us? All of this is crucial to seeing Jesus correctly because the incarnation, it's not just a description of what Jesus did, but it's a reflection of God's true character. What I mean by that is this. There's, there's a scholar by the name of N.T. Wright. Uh, he writes this, and it's a little dense, but follow along because I think you'll see the beauty in what he's trying to say. The decision for Jesus to become human and to go all the way to the road of obedience, all the way to the cross, this decision was not a decision to stop being divine. It was a decision about what it really meant to be divine. The incarnation must be seen not as something which required him, as it were, to stop being God for a while, but as the perfect self-expression of the true God. What what N.T. Wright is saying is this. When Jesus came and became flesh, he wasn't doing it begrudgingly. He wasn't doing it like, oh, I have to do this. What that was showing us is this is who God is is and always has been in the Old Testament and the New, that we have a God who sacrifices everything for our sake. Look, you give anyone power and their true self will always be completely revealed. I know this with my children, right? Whenever I tell my son Eli, who's five, and I have to do something, I'm like, hey, Eli, like, I'm gonna you know, do laundry, we'll be right back, you're in charge. Whenever I come back, my daughter is crying, right? Why? Because power reveals a soul. You give any person power, you give any person money, their true character is revealed. Look to Jesus. He has given all the power in the world, in the universe, and therefore, his true character is revealed. Look to the cross. This is not just a reflection of what God did for us. This is a reflection of God's character, of who he is as a person. God is out not for his own selfish gain, but emptying himself so that he can serve and love those around him, especially those he created, even in their rebellion. And what does that mean for us? Well, I know I spent a lot of time on that, but I want us to see that must change how we view the church and how we view ourselves. Paul implores us to have this same mindset for the church. He says, have the same mind of Christ. Because this is the thing, we're not called to be a meeting place for the insured, that, oh, hey, we're we're just insurance policy holders. We're all meeting up, like, hey, good thing we're going to heaven. See you next week. That's not what church is. It's supposed to be a place where we're called to love one another just as Jesus has shown his love for us. Well, how can we then be an incarnational community? I'm Jake Meter. He, he writes this in The Atlantic recently, and he, he has an article entitled the, the, the Reason Why Millions of People Are Leaving the American Church. And he writes this, the tragedy of American churches is that they have been so caught up in this same world that we now find they have nothing to offer these suffering people that can't be more easily found somewhere else. American churches have too often been content to function as a kind of vaguely spiritual NGO, an organization of detached individuals who meet together for religious services that inspire them, provide practical life advice, or offer positive emotional experiences. Look, if you want any of that, you can go to CrossFit. It's, it's a lot better, trust me, right? But the church is not called to just give you experiences 
It's not called to just give you practical TED Talks. What the church is called to do is to be a meeting place to reflect that love that was shown to us. That we're not just meeting as consumers here, that we're meeting to give and to empty ourselves. Well, how do we do that? Well, let's look at Jesus, and he gives us ways to do that. The first we need to realize is this. If we're called to bring that truth of the incarnation into this community, the first is this. We have to be fully present. We have to be fully present. And it's one of the most difficult things to do. Uh, when Jesus did not count as equality with a thing to be grasped, as Paul said, you, you have to realize this. He also let go of some divine attributes. Because God is omnipresent, he's omniconscious, he's omni. He, he has so many qualities, but when Jesus became man, there are certain qualities he could not take. One of them being omnipresence, meaning that God can be anywhere all at once. And, and deep down inside, some of us so desire to have that. You know how I know that? Because we multitask like no other. Right? I always talk about that. We, like, we listen to podcasts while we're washing the dishes at 1.5 speed, while we're FaceTiming like someone at the same. It's just, it's crazy. And deep, why, why, do we, why are we so obsessed with life hacks and, and, and efficiency tools and self-help books? Because deep down inside, we want to be everywhere at once. We want to be so efficient. You know, there's a movie called The Watchmen, um, and there's a, there's a character called Dr. Manhattan. He's kind of the main, most powerful person, and he almost has godlike uh, attributes, and he gets in trouble because in one scene, he's talking to his girlfriend, but he splits himself, and he's working at the same time. And deep down inside, some of us are like, oh, you watch, I watched that scene, and I was like, I wish I could do that, right? And nothing against my wife, right? But just like, I, I want to be self, I want to be very uh, efficient with my time. But think about this, Jesus could have done that. He could have, but he didn't. He was always fully present with the human being in front of him, even though he is God. He had to sit through his disciples fighting about who's the best. He had to deal with the crowds rushing for his attention. And yet through it all, he's always deeply rooted in the present. See, even in our human form, we can want to be omnipresent with people in front of us, with our attention spans, with our phones. But the first step to becoming a community that's incarnational is this, be fully present. And I know it's hard. Because this is the thing, no one knows if you're fully present except yourself. Because I'll be honest too, my mind wanders all the time. Right? When people like, are telling me a story, like sometimes like, when it's like five minutes in, I'm just like, I'm, I'm pretty checked out, man. Right? Sometimes when people are preaching, I'll be honest too, like by this point, I'm like thinking about my fantasy football team for next year. But what Jesus shows us is this, that when he became human, what he was fighting for in this ADHD world is to be fully present with the people right in front of him. Can we do that? You know, when I'm home with my children, I cannot sit there and make them concerned with my own needs. To be a good father is to be fully present with their pressing even though it may be elementary needs. Like I would love to talk about certain things I have to do with them, but they want to talk about Mario. They want to talk about Elsa for the 80th time. And it's like, you know what a good father does? He sits there and he's fully present. Can we do the same in our communities? Can we be fully present? And second, what else does Jesus do? Well, he empties himself. Jesus emptied himself of all desires, of all ambition to serve us. Right? He had no expectations. He took no debts 
with people in front of him. Rather, he gave himself fully to those around him, fully present, but also he emptied everything of himself so that he can give everything of himself to those around him. What I realize is this, that true love eliminates the distinction between giving and receiving. True love to those around you, it eliminates the distinction between giving and receiving. Because this is the thing, if you're like me and you're human, we all keep records. We all keep our debts. We all have a, a little, little, little spiritual checking book with people. And when they, when they take out something, you're like, ah, oh, I'll write that down. For example, my wife, right, like I mentioned, back-to-back concerts, which was great. I was happy for her. Went to Boys to Men and Taylor Swift. I was, I was I, I'm, saying, I'm being serious. I was genuinely happy. They get out of the house. It's good. But at the same time, I booked so many tea times when she did that, right? Why did I do that? I'm keeping records, right? But true love, it gives no distinction between giving and receiving. Uh, Ronald Rollheiser, he writes this, and I found this to be very helpful. Uh, to self-empty in the way of Jesus is described as doing means being present without demanding that your presence be recognized and its importance acknowledged. It means giving without demanding that your generosity be reciprocated. It means being invitational rather than threatening. It means being vulnerable and helpless, unable to protect yourself against the pain of being taken for granted or rejected. It means living in great patience that doesn't demand intervention, divine or human, when things don't unfold according to your will. It means letting God be God and others be themselves without either having to submit to your wishes or to your timetable. I mean, it's, it's a harsh and, and a very narrow road to follow, but that's how community is built. You have to empty yourself, right? Because this is the thing, living in the Western world, we've allowed the marketplace, the consumeristic marketplace, not just to dominate how we do our economics, but how we do our relationships. Like, I've talked about this before, but Chipotle is a great example. Chipotle by itself is great because I'm very picky. And when you go to Chipotle, it was kind of like mind-blowing when it first came out because no longer do you have to listen to what the chef tells you. You tell the chef, I want exactly this, right? Rice, extra fajita, guacamole, chicken, and you could, you could customize it to your perfect desires. But the problem is we've allowed that mindset to now bleed into our relational spaces, when we come to church, we're like, oh, I want to make sure I find a place that's this, this, and this, and this. When I find friends and community, I want to make sure that they're this, this, and this, and this. But that is not what Jesus is showing us. He's emptying himself of all desires. He allows himself to be fully present by having nothing inside of himself other than himself to give to others. And it's a difficult thing to do. You know, when, uh, I, I visited Japan a bunch of times, and it, it, it's a trippy place because they're the nicest people you'll ever meet, kind of, right? Um, and this is the thing, you know, I, I, I'm fascinated by words and their meanings. The, the, for Westerners, how do you meet people? Right? You, don't, you don't bow, you greet. That's, it's a literal word. And the word greeting in the German, it means grusen, and what that means is a grunt. Because what that's saying is, it, how Western people greet one another it's back in the days when you saw someone in front of you, they were a threat. So what you do is you would grunt to make yourself known. And nothing has changed, right? Because in America, what do you do? Hello, my name is Eugene. What's your name? Hello, my name. And you make a move. You kind of 
come forward and you're like, let my presence be known. When you go to a business meeting right, and you want to close a deal, what do you always firm handshakes because you want to make sure your presence is known. In Japan, very different. Like when all people do is they, when they see you, they bow. And the notion of bowing is very interesting because think about what you're doing when you're bowing. You're making yourself, you're emptying yourself. Where is your gaze? You're no longer looking at someone grabbing their hand. Your gaze is at their feet. And what Jesus is saying is this. Can we not just do that with social things and, and just physically, but can we do that spiritually with those around us? Can we see others at the church, in the workplace, in our families? Can we empty ourselves to the point of curiosity that when we are truly in front of others, we see them before ourselves? Can you empty yourself? Can you be fully present? Can you empty yourself? But lastly, can you take up the cross? Uh, the incarnation of Jesus, what you have to realize is this. When Jesus became human, it was permanent. He, he, you know, when he ascended into heaven, he didn't go back into spiritual form. He is and forever will be in human form. It wasn't some quick magic trick that Jesus could change into the back, uh, backstage, into back into his God clothes. What that means for us is this. There is a constant burden for truly loving and caring like Jesus did. Because this is the thing, many of us, we help until it hurts. And then when it hurts, it stops. You know how I know that, like golf, I don't wanna talk about golf too much, but golf is, is so fascinating because when you play golf with people, their true self really comes out. Jay's talked about that, right? Honesty and all that, but also how they help you. Because this is the thing, in golf, you know, if, if you play with church people, you lose, everyone loses their balls, right? And you have to look for your balls. I'm always very helpful if I'm playing well. I'll be like, oh, I'll help you find your ball. While my ball's in the like, oh, it's right here. If I lose my ball, the only person I'm caring about is me, myself, and I. So many of us, on a relational sense, we do the same thing. We'll help. Right? We'll, 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 be, we'll, we'll, we'll give food and Venmo stuff, but when it hurts, we stop. You have to realize this. Even this church, True North, and, and when I think about how big it's become, and I was on staff in 2017, we started when I first came. It was like 20, 30 people. And it didn't grow into what it is now without people literally taking up their cross every day. Like, I remember when I first came to church and I first came on staff for full time, I came on a Sunday and I was like, oh, there must be volunteers. And Jay was like, nope, it's just us, right? And, and for like a year, I would come every Sunday and Jay would be setting up all chairs. I'd be like, is anyone helping? He's like, nope. And I was like, okay, then I have to do the same. There's certain members here that who have been here before even Jay came. And when, when it was a point where the church was about to die and yet what they said is, I want to care more for the community than myself. That's the burden I'll bear. And from this, what has happened, we've built a church that we now reside here. If we want to care for others, as Jesus has shown us, we have to take up the cross. Different people will be different crosses. Different people will be different burdens. But that's the burden you have to bear if we're called to be a true community. Be fully present. Empty yourself and take up the cross. But lastly, and I'll end quickly with this, how do we do all this stuff? Because that sounds exhausting. I'll be honest, it is. To truly love like Jesus did in an incarnational way, it's the most exhausting thing you can ever do. And I'll say this, if you just try and do it, it's impossible. But what you have to realize is this, the incarnation is not just how we're supposed to love others. The incarnation is also the secret of how we're supposed to love God. It's not just a blueprint for our community, it's a blueprint for your soul. For many of us here, I would say this, the reason we're so far away from God is 
is not from some scandalous sin. It's not because we're rebelling openly against God. It's because deep down inside, you're just too busy. You're just too busy. And because we're so busy, we cannot live deeply with God. What Jesus is showing us here is this. In the last couple of verses of this text, what we see is this. God, as Jesus empties himself, glorifies him. Verse eight and uh, verse nine. Therefore, right? Verses four to five or four to seven is all about the incarnation. Verse nine. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As Jesus emptied himself, he got more of the glory and intimacy of God the Father. And that's not just reserved for Jesus. That's also the blueprint for our own souls. How do we give everything to those around us? By first emptying ourselves so that we can be filled with God. Again, Jake Meter in his article, he continues and he writes this, and it's an astute observation. The problem in front of us is not that we have a healthy, sustainable society that doesn't have room for church. The problem is that many Americans have adopted a way that is, of life that has left us lonely anxious and uncertain of how to live in community with other people. What Jake Meter is saying is this, for many of us, what stops us from deep, life-giving intimacy with God is not, it's not that we don't know enough. It's not that we don't do enough. It's because our souls are already full with other things. It's full of desires. It's full of pride. It's full of ambition. And I'll say this, why did you come to the Bay Area? Because some desire brought you, and I'm not saying that's a bad desire. But this is the thing, our plate, our souls, it's, there's, a, there's a cap. There's only so much your soul can be filled with. And we can't come to God with a full cup saying, fill me up, because it's impossible. You have to empty yourself so that you can be filled with God. We try and fill ourselves with ambition and desire or apathy and numbness just because we're so terrified of what will happen if we're not. You know, I read recently, you know what pride truly is? Pride is not just brash confidence, but it's extreme confidence mixed in with extreme anxiety. And when you have an extremely confident person and an extremely anxious person, then you get a prideful person. And what God is saying is this. When you look in Eden, Genesis 3, Ab and Eve, they fall and they're terrified. What do they do? They cover themselves with fig leaves. And what God says is, I can cover you with my grace, but you have to give that up. He makes these garments of skins, but what's kind of implied in the text is they have to give up their fig leaves so that they can receive these garments. For many of us, we're so filled and busy, we can never taste the joy of God's presence. Many of us, we live out of spiritual greed and gluttony. Meaning this, when you're full with other things of the world, you're more concerned with what you get from God than God himself. But I'll tell you this, just as Jesus has shown us, when you empty yourself of whatever, you know, whatever is your deepest longing desire, when you let that go and then you come to God, it's a radically different experience because then you can finally be filled, just as Adam and Eve has shown us, with God's presence. I'll close with this. Let, let's, we have to learn to empty ourselves to be filled by God, and in turn, we can fill others with his love that he's given to us. Let's pray.